This podcast is brought to you by HealthCareInfoSecurity.com, the leading online publication for risk management and security professionals within the healthcare industry. This is Howard Anderson, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group, and today we're talking with Devin McGraw, uh, Director of the Health Privacy Project at the Center for Democracy Technology and Co-Chair of the Privacy and Security Tiger Team. That's a mouthful. Yes, it is. Thanks for talking to me today, Devin. (laughs) I'm glad to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about how you anticipate the Tiger Team's recommendations to be implemented? I mean, are we going to see them show up in the NHIN governance rule or the HIPAA modifications or the HR incentive programs part two and three, phase two and three, or, or all of those, or what do you think? Well, I, you know, there's probably a difference between what I would love to see happen and what is probably more realistic. My ideal would be for HHS as a whole to look at all of their policy levers, which would include HIPAA modifications, as well as putting, you know, spending conditions and the, the governance, the voluntary governance process that they want to establish through this upcoming National Health Information Network rules. So there are a number of sort of ways that HHS can influence policy in this regard. And I, I would love it if they would sort of think about what's the most appropriate vehicle for the different components. So just to give you an example, we said a lot about how there ought to be some really clear limits on intermediaries in terms of how they use data and that it not just to be an issue of consent, but where you've got business associates being exposed to to data in transit or holding data such as in a centralized HIE, you know, they're subject to business agreement constraints and some constraints under the HIPAA privacy and security rules you know, those haven't been spelled out with as much particularity as we think they would need to be in order to be consistent with Tiger Team recommendations. So rather than trying to find another policy lever through the NHIN governance and meaningful use, which are voluntary programs and spending conditions for HIEs for which the grant money is already actually out the door, so that's a diminishing lever, I'd much rather see them think about that as, as something to put in HIPAA and then some of the other pieces such as on consent rather than disrupting HIPAA's traditional model to think about that as a best practice above and beyond HIPAA that might be done such as through the through the governance rule. I gave you my ideal scenario and what I think is probably more likely is that it'll show up in the governance rule because I think that the Office of Civil Rights they have some specific direction from Congress about HIPAA modifications that they have to make and I think they have historically been reluctant to make changes to that rule on their own. And this isn't part of the sort of constellation of things that Congress is requiring them to do. So I don't don't get the sense that there is a great appetite there for reopening it up for issues that they haven't been asked to address. You know, I would say they did take on a little bit of the research issues that the research community has raised in the most recent proposed rule, and Congress didn't make them do that. And so they might push back on me and say, well, you know, we did this and we didn't have to. But those were the only things. And for people who don't know, describe that NHIN governance rule and its purpose. So in in the high-tech legislation, there's just one sentence on NHIN in the whole document. Like the National Health, NHIN stands for the National Health Information Network. And so what it said was ONC needs to establish governance for the Nationwide Health Information Network. 
And ONC's, the general counsel, actually it's probably the general counsel of HHS, said, well, if you're going to establish a set of rules and call them governance, you really are going to need to do so through a rulemaking. You can't do this through, you know, some sort of sub-regulatory body. This is important. And so they have said that they're going to issue a rule this fall that is about the specifics of nationwide health information governance, including what they call the conditions of trust and interoperability. What are, the, what are the particular rules on how data is accessed, used, and disclosed that are going to be layered on top of what law already requires? And that's for those using the NHIN standards to exchange that's data right, among right. themselves, that's like right. HIE to HIE. Right, right. And so, as, so the Nationwide Health Information Network, in the governance conversations that have taken place, at least within the policy committee to date, have been about that is really a voluntary brand that you if you ascribe to this set of criteria that are established you can use the NHIN brand but it is voluntary although you could see that there might be a way to link some of the spending authority that either ONC or CMS has to participating in this otherwise voluntary structure so if for example in the meaningful use criteria on privacy and security, one could say that in stage two, you need to be a participant in the nationwide health information network and using the, those branded standards to exchange. But that's not in the stage two Oh, proposal. it's not It's not in the request for comment, because we don't know what those, it was even hard to leave a placeholder for that in terms of the meaningful use work groups drafting the request for comments, because we just have no idea what that governance rule is going to look like. The, the governance work group, what those recommendations were that were adopted by the policy committee were much more about process and far less about substance. And so if one of the first places where we're going to see what ONC means when it says the substance of governance, it's kind of hard to make predictions about what that's going to look like and then say you're going to rely on that as a meaningful use criterion. Now. The draft of requirements for stage two and three of the HR incentive program mm -hmm. didn't have much, or didn't have anything on privacy and security yeah. added. Yeah. Why is that, and will it be added later? Yeah. So I, I mean, I know the reason why there are privacy and security criteria in, in the meaning in the request for comment, and that's because it's really that that's a comment out of the meaningful use work group. The Tiger team has been building out a policy framework of um, with you know, an ever-growing list of privacy and security policy recommendations, and that work isn't done. And so rather than for the Meaningful Use Work Group to try to put those in in their incomplete form in the RFC, I, they decided to give us essentially a little bit more time to flesh out the, the framework that we've been working on with the expectation that that work would inform the privacy and security category of meaningful use. So when they get to the next phase, which is probably notice for proposed yeah. rulemaking, that and could have more detail. That could and okay. should have more detail. So I think, you know, so we're expecting that rule to be proposed towards the end of 2011. So we could see some Tiger Team recommendations in there as well as the NHIN governance? That's where the timing gets a little tricky, right? So, you know, to the extent that there has been some indications from ONC that they might look to the governance rule to be the vehicle for implementing the Tiger Team policy recommendations, if that comes out first in the fall of 2011, for example, and these are all time estimates that are not at all may not even be wildly accurate, 
Um, if that were to come out first, then we'd have we would have some time to say, oh, well, do we like them in here? Are there some that ought to sort of be carved out and stuck into meaning, you know, specifically in a meaningful use? Or do we just create a tie to in the meaningful use criteria? You must be a subscriber to the Nationwide Health Information Network and be governed by its principles and not be kicked out for failure to comply. Is that the way we're going to do it? And the problem will be if the meaningful use, work, meaningful use rule comes out before the governance rule and then... We'll, I think we'll really be hard-pressed to try to figure out how those two things are going to be knit together. This PCAST report, the Presidential Council, that called for a universal exchange language, what do you think of the proposal? As, is it practical for, to require the use of a universal exchange language in stages two and three of the uh, HR Incentive Program? So whether an ex a universal exchange language is achievable in stage two or whether it ought to be stage three in part depends on how, what you, what, what you think about when you think of a universal exchange language. So one could argue that where we have some standards in place already for certain types of data like laboratory data and pharmacy data, that, that is actually in a structured language that while we don't have complete industry um, adherence, we're already moving in that direction in stage one. But that, that's not exactly what the PCAST report said. They wanted a universal exchange language that would move what they called atomic level data elements versus movement of data within documents at a, at a very early stage, stage two to stage three. And I, and I just think that that's a set of expectations that as put in the PCAST report, it's probably going to take a little bit longer to get there than stage two or stage three because, you know, much, much of the way that current EHR technology exchanges data is through documents that have, you know, multiple types of data in them. Of course, lab reports are usually on their own. You know, one, again, one could argue there is a universal exchange language for lab data. It's the HL7, I think it's 2.5.1. <laughs> vocabulary and content standards. So it, it just kind of depends on what you're talking about. There are bits and pieces of the universal exchange language recommendation that one could argue we're already doing. But in terms of the PCAST vision, which is you know the tagging of, of data elements within a document and the ability to exchange them outside of their document container, that might take a little longer because it's just not the way that most EHRs is my understanding that that are sort of certified and available for purchase today that's not the way they're necessarily built and there's going to need to be some path forward whether it's through middleware or through these systems you know having a 2.0 retrofit for that to work. Does the whole debate on the PCAST recommendations have the potential to derail progress toward health information exchange? I, I I think it only derails progress if the focus on the recommendations is as a sort of take it or leave it, we must do it all and all at once or we don't do any of it. And, and, and that's a mistake because I, I do think there are some really important visionary statements and goals in there that you don't really see that we've made progress toward with the current set of sort of infrastructure standards um, that we've put into place. And, w and one example of this is that we've been focusing a lot on direct models of exchange, which means push types of transactions. I, as doctor, send information to the other doctors that are on your care team. And I do that by pushing it to them through secure messaging, um, through the sending of a document, 
but we don't, and, and so therefore we focused on NHIN Direct. We focused on um, provider directories in the information exchange workgroup, so you could find the electronic ac uh, address of the provider that you wanted to send information to. We have not yet laid the infrastructure, at least at the national level, some states have done this, for you to find a patient's data, even if you have no idea what other doctor has treated him or her. That's the sort of query and pull model, which is the essence of PCAST. Right? You, you are treating a patient and you want to find information about them to prepare yourself to treat them. You have a research protocol and you want to find you know, the patients who have you know, had mammograms in the last five years. It's, it is a different model of exchange that we really have not focused any infrastructure development work on at the national level. But we have really focused on push. And I, and I do think that was the right place to start. You know, when data isn't moving at all, at least get people the capacity to, to sort of send it out to their normal trading partners. But to be able to sort of broaden that lens and think about kind of nationwide data sharing and the, you know, the use case of you showing up in an emergency room and they know who you are, but they don't really know what doctors have treated you and where your records are, and to be able to find that. Um, you know, the Markle Common Framework did a huge amount of work on that. It's not like there aren't some sort of models that you can that you can build on, and PCAST presents some issues to think about in that regard too. Okay, just to wrap up, what's next for this privacy and security tiger team? Um, do you, have you picked what topics you're going to tackle next, and you're going to ask the public for uh, input on? Well, so we've got a couple that are teed up um, for March and April that are. Um, well, one is a holdover, and we've been talking about dealing with it for a while, and we just keep pushing it off because ONC asks us to prioritize things on occasion. And that is patient access to information and what are the policies for identifying and authenticating patients to be able to electronically get their records, such as through a portal. We have been asked by ONC to put in front of that discussion um, user authentication at the provider level. So we already issued some recommendations about digital certificates at the entity level, you know, for a hospital or for a physician practice. But in terms of the single physician user accessing information across a network, such as if they're using a, an EHR system that's software as a service, where they're uh, accessing their own EHR remotely um, through some sort of, of, of portal or otherwise, how do you authenticate that that person is who they say they are and what are the sort of basic baseline policy standards and so that we've been asked to put that next and then i really do want to ask the public for some input on where there are still recommendations to be issued we've asked the tiger team already to help us to help paul eggerman who's my co-chair and i think through um, here are the, here's what we've already done. Here are the nationwide data sharing principles that we're relying on, that we're trying to flesh out in the policy. What, what's missing? What's left? Where do we still need policy? And that should also be informed on where we already have law. I mean, if, if we think the law is sufficient, we, we don't necessarily need to, to add any more. So that is to come. I, I, I would say, you know, I'm hoping that, in the, that there'll be an opportunity to sort of solicit more public comment, probably through the blog on that issue in April. Uh, thanks, Devin. We've been talking to Devin McGraw, uh, co-chair of the Privacy and Security Tiger Team. Uh, this is Howard Anderson, and thanks for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by healthcareinfosecurity.com. For more interviews, breaking news, research, and educational webinars, please visit www.healthcareinfosecurity.com.